0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Hi, I'm Dylan Hoyer, the producer of The Shameless Chef, and I'm back again to share another HRN show that I hope you'll enjoy. A Taste of the Past brings listeners on a journey through the history of food. Host and culinary historian Linda Palaccio interviews authors, scholars, and culinary chroniclers to discuss food culture from ancient Mesopotamia and Rome to the grazing tables and deli counters of today. Each week, Linda explores the lively link between food cultures of the present and past. If you looked forward to going back in time with The Shameless Chef each week while learning home cooking tips that are still relevant today, then I know you'll love the insights that A Taste of the Past has to offer. The show has over 350 episodes to explore, so go check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm sharing a recent interview between Linda and Dr. Jessica B. Harris, a culinary historian and the foremost expert on the food and foodways of the African diaspora. Dr. Harris also has a series on HRN called My Welcome Table. Maybe you'll want to check that out too. Now, here's the show.
2: This program is brought to you by Wine Access. Here's a great way to discover and drink the best wines expertly curated for you. Go to WineAccess.com slash HRN for more info.
1: With our growing season just around the corner... We're sowing seeds of knowledge and empathy on this week's episode of Meat and 3 through four unique stories.
3: I'm always shocked at how aggressive people are with their language. I'll have something like Japanese knocked and they'll say, you know, these are terrible. They're, they're foreigners,
4: they're invasive,
3: And you know, but they're also, you know, they're really healthy if you eat them.
4: We're surrounded by seeds that have already adapted to live with us. And they're actually already kind of living in the future because cities are hotter, and they're more polluted, and they're more fragmented, and these are the plants that can deal with that.
1: Tune in to Meat in 3, available wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today we're talking about African-American history. And there was a special exhibit started, well, an idea kind of started about, oh, I don't know, four years ago, well, three or four years ago, at the Museum of Food and Drink. And they embarked on an ambitious and very much needed project, in my opinion, to present African-American culinary contributions to the American foundations of food which they they established and they set. This exhibition was called, or is called still, African American Making the Nation's Table. And the centerpiece of that exhibit is a quilt, not just any quilt, but a huge quilt, 14 feet tall and almost 30 feet wide. Um, and it's called the Legacy Quilt. And it documents the legacy of those African-Americans who made contributions to American cuisine from 1619 to 2019. That's 400 years of contributions. Obviously, we couldn't get everybody in or they couldn't get everyone in, but it is an amazing work of art. I have not seen the real thing yet. Um, I am seeing it through a a book, a reproduction of the book, because when COVID came along, the exhibition sadly had to be postponed. The quilt is now housed, I I don't know if it's on view, but it is housed at the Africa Center um, in Manhattan, New York City, up in, in Harlem. And it will be on display, I know, during 2022. And this quilt really... Well, I'm going to have my guests tell us all about it, but it tells so much about the African-American history and contribution to American cuisine because there are so many stories that really, as I say, countless stories that deserve recognition. So many stories that deserve recognition and, and not everyone is possible to be recognized because we don't know everyone who contributed. But this is an incredible work of art and Documentation on that. And my guest today is Jessica B. Harris. She was named the curator of the lead curator of this exhibit um, because Jessica is the foremost expert on food and foodways of the African diaspora. Her contributions to the Black culinary history include 12 books, as well as editing and many and contributing to many others and writing countless essays and articles. And above all, she's a voice and an activist for learning and bringing to the forefront the history and the legacy of African-Americans who shaped and laid this foundation of American cuisine. Dr. Harris was also a consultant on the cafe of the recently established Smithsonian African-American Museum. And uh, she has the singular honor of having, of being the first cover on a new magazine. So she now can put cover girl in her her CV as one of her uh, accomplishments. The new magazine is called For the Culture, founded and edited by Clancy Miller, and it's a biannual printed food magazine that celebrates Black women, and it's written by, photographed by, it's all done by Black women, and it's the first magazine of its kind. Quite an incredible photograph on the cover, and we'll have to get one of those posted. And Jessica is also, she also has a block on this quilt. Um, Jessica has received a Lifetime Achievement Award um, for her body of work from the Smithsonian um, Institution. And uh, I don't, Jessica, there's just so I could I could just talk on and on about you, but I want to hear from you. So before we go any further, I would like to present Jessica B. Harris. Uh,
4: welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Linda. But first, I need to make a correction to the bio. Um I have not received a Lifetime Achievement Award from uh, the Smithsonian. I have received Lifetime Achievement Awards from the Southern Foodways Alliance. Ah, yes. From the Soul Summit and from the James Beard Foundation but not from the Smithsonian. Oh, it's
3: next, not to worry. Well. (laughs) I'll I'll plant that seed in their head. From your
4: mouth to God's ear. (laughs) And while you're up there, tell them I want a MacArthur too. Um,
3: Right, a little money.
4: (laughs) Yeah, money would be nice. Um, Anyhow, um, I am very, very honored to be the lead curator of this exhibit that is just extraordinary that talks about um, a large portion of the span of the African presence in this, well, not this hemisphere, but this country that became the United States from 1619 to 2019. Um, It's it's a singular honor and it is... um, no, I'm delighted that that MoFAD thought of me and that it has moved forward in that sense.
3: Right. And for those who don't know, MoFAD is what how we refer to it. It's the Museum of Food and Drink here in New York. Um, and but MoFad is just so much easier. And this was all this was a long time coming, this project. There I read somewhere the exhibition advisory board, there were 28 of them, and then and you were the lead. How in the world first of all you got some fantastic people to work on it but how in the world you were able to to finally distill this well the centerpiece the quilt into the um the the numbers of people that you have on it how many blocks are there in this quilt
4: I actually couldn't tell you huh. that yeah.
3: um
4: I I don't know either
3: I didn't see it written anywhere but
4: I'm I'm just not sure. I know that um, that there are not enough blocks to right. begin to highlight everyone, among other reasons because we don't know everyone. and along with not knowing everyone, there is equally the fact that um, that the quilt blocks were kind of um, solicited from folks. Of hmm. all kinds, um, a, a group of us from the advisory board certainly made suggestions and, you know, kind of knew people who had to be on the quilt, you know, for whom there was no question. But along with that, there were then other, other people who who submitted ideas, who suggested people, and there is an ongoing virtual quilt on which people can put their own suggestions, their own family members and so on and so forth. So the quilt is not static, it goes on, it moves right. forward. Um, I think one of the things is that, um, that the quilt itself is is such a centerpiece because it um, it encompasses so many things, certainly, the African American skills at needlework, at so many things of that sort, but equally the um, the the whole use of quilt as as metaphor for the coming together of so much diversity within the African American community, and it's. Um, it's coming together in something that then creates an art in and of itself. So I think that that, uh, an art piece rather, in and of itself, I think that that's all very important.
3: Yeah. I mean, to be able to, I mean, it's one thing to open a a book and read about a person and their history, but when you see these, I mean, I'm, as I say I've, I've only seen the book and the pictures and cannot quite grasp the, you know, the, enormity of this, of this project, but the drawings, and they're all representative drawings. They're not photographs in the quilt. They're, they're taken from photographs, many, many of the drawings, but, but quilts, as we know from, you know, throughout history, quilts were, legacy quilts were always, you know, something that it's such an incredible piece of, of history and background. But even the quilting process in this was a was a real decision, and that was that was an interesting one.:
4: Well, I mean, we worked with Harlem Needle arts and and they are specialists. Uh, the thing about the quilt that's not necessarily immediately obvious from looking at it is the degree of thought that went into it, the fabrics that are used in it, each era. Each of the four centuries, if you will, is characterized by fabric that is representative of, and in some cases, actually from that era. So that it is a carefully thought out thing. Um, There are, uh, you know, icons, regions, there are the um, replicas of the patterns in the quilts, there are the um the construction of the quilt, the which blocks go next to which blocks and so on and so forth. Mm. Uh, so it encompasses the um you know not only the culinary history, but also in some ways the um material cultural history of the periods as well.
3: Right. So when you said there were it's split up into basically four periods you say like well the first hundred years
4: well four different four hundred periods four different hundred year periods yeah
3: yeah well and of course so many um you know back then we don't know so many of the people who were instrumental we don't know who contributed we don't know their names and certainly there were no likenesses of them so we have representations of perhaps they were Um, important in in inventing something or developing a a recipe or a food. But then there are the the blank, the intentionally left blank blocks. Can you talk about that?
4: Well, there are blocks that are left blank intentionally simply to represent all of those names, all of those people, all of those individuals that we don't know. Uh, I think one of the things that for me is personally kind of rewarding and that is equally fascinating is the degree to which every um, every year, pretty much every month, we're finding something new about the culinary history of African Americans, the way that things go, the way that things things move and morph and change as more and more people begin to research. The culinary, we are finding more and more things. Um, when I wrote a book called High on the Hog in two thousand and eleven, mm-hmm. the you can, um, you can
3: hear that you can hear that show on a taste of the past. <laughs> did we you came in and joined me then for a show on that?
4: But go I on. think I did. Yeah. Anyhow, when I wrote High on the Hog in two thousand and eleven, um I, there was only so much known about uh, George Washington's chef. Hercules, but in the intervening nine years, they've found not only where he, well, first of all, his last name, which was Posey, um, when he uh, escaped, if you will, from Washington's enslavement, where he went, and it is thought that he remained in Philadelphia, where he had been. And uh, they may have discovered where he's buried. So, I mean, the work goes on, and things keep being added to it every second. Virtually, I mean, as people discover things, as you know, things turn up hither, thither, or wherever.
3: That's right. Do you think that this? Well, undoubtedly, the the work in creating this exhibit um, has simulated a lot of a lot more research in that area. Um, What, what in particular impresses you about this exhibit and, and the quilt in terms of its historical contribution to you in particular? What, what, um, you're saying so much more is, is discovered. I can't help but think that people are more inspired to learn and research and find out about their ancestors or the or the history of America?
4: Well, I mean, unfortunately, the exhibition has not yet opened to the public. It was right. scheduled to open in March of 2020. And I have walked through it. And it, a mighty and impressive thing it is. Uh, I can't wait until people can actually get in and see it and uh, understand something. And I think what happens then and what will happen then is people will begin to um, to understand how, how broad the African-American contribution is, how deep and how broad, how deep, how wide, how extraordinarily ranged. It goes from things like... Um, Well, Norbert Rieu, who uh, was a free creole of color in Louisiana, who transformed the production of sugar. It talks about people um, who uh, just created worlds that we now take for granted. I mean, certainly sugar production is something that we take for granted. We, you know, have sugar. There it is. We don't think of the work that went into it or or the the contributions that may have made it a better or a different or a less onerous task. Working sugar is a horrific task, by the way. And so anything that made it better, that made it easier, that made it less dangerous, it was a very much welcome thing. Uh, We don't think about the degree of what can we call it? Um, Ownership, the degree of creativity that went into um, creating some of the inventions. There were um, things like um, turning forks and corn shuckers and, and, all kinds of patents that were applied for. Uh, The whole notion of catering in some way was very much created by African Americans in 19th century Philadelphia. Um, We see that there are um, lamps that could be used as stoves. And I mean, just so many things. We don't think of the importance that African-Americans had within the oystering industry in the 19th century. Many of the oystermen, certainly in New York City and on the eastern seaboard, were African-American. There's so much to be said.
3: Right. Uh, And, you know, a few have been, you know, uh, singled out, but you know that where there are one or two, there are bound to be many more who you know, who were doing it across the country and, and you know, whatever field of, of, you know, the area of cuisine. In, in the culinary arts in particular, there has always been a large African-American presence, or, you know, primarily. I mean, always some of the top chefs were always um, in the, in the culinary arts were African-Americans, many of them not necessarily recognized, uh, or given their due note, many were more, you know, so they were relegated more to behind the scenes. But they were, but there were, you know, well, not to take it away from you, executive chefs, lead chefs, very famous chefs. Um, things we don't we don't realize. And, and you mentioned the catering. I was so amazed. Uh David Shields years, a few years back wrote a book where it first opened my eyes to the number of African American caterers that of note that really set the stage for, you know, for large catering, um, you know, very large political gatherings parties. And, you know, and, and of course we know the white house chefs, you had to choose 25 was it 25 people from that first period or so to put in the book because the book could not highlight everyone, so you were asked to choose 25 people to highlight?
4: I was asked to choose 25 people across the board out of the 400 years, not how? out of the first now, how,
3: did, how did you go about that?
4: Well, first of all, I made the decision to not put any people who were alive in it. So that eliminated many of the people from the 20th and 21st centuries. Mm-hmm. But I worked on a variety of things. I wanted to have a range. It, it's a book. It's an illustrated book. And so I thought about the illustrations as much as the importance of the individual. The, um, the fact that the individuals were on the quilt in and of themselves, um, in and of itself, says that they were certainly not just worthy of note, but noted. Uh, I think that along with that, then I went on to look at the design. I tried to have an equal number of men and women. I wanted to have all of the categories from entrepreneurship to de, what invention to um, particular ingredients that were highlighted, particular individuals that were highlighted. And I wanted to be sure to include things like um, bartenders and entrepreneurship uh, and um, such as that. So um, and then some cases I just picked things because I like I like the quilt square. <laughs> so it's it's a very kind of quirky selection, but it is a selection that speaks to the diversity of the quilt
3: and. Uh, not to go without mentioning a couple of of the people who were instrumental in in this quilt, the making of the quilt as well. And that is um, the writer and the artist. And uh, certainly I get to give a shout out to my friend, Scott Barton, um, who was also uh, one of the
4: well, I asked Scott if he would come on board and look at some of these with me. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of became my my backstop on some of them. But mm-hmm. I mean, actually, I mean, if you want to talk about who is involved in it, certainly there was Osai Endelin, who was the writer. There was uh, Adrian Franks, who was the graphic designer, who was involved with all of it. There was, were the ladies of Harlem Needle Arts who actually made the quilt, who constructed it, who quilted it. And they are, and among others, Michelle Bishop, who is the executive director... Oh Laura Gadson, who's the quilting artist, Sylvia Hernandez, who's another quilting artist, and Ife Felix, who's a quilting artist. But uh, the Q Effect, who did some of the photography, and some of the images are quilted photographs, so they are there. Um, you know, um, June Chung was a creative consultant on the quilt as well, um, And then the entire team from the Museum of Food and Drink, um, Catherine Piccoli, who was the curatorial director and who became acting president, but who is now back to being curatorial director and I think very (laughs) glad to not be acting president again. (laughs) And um, so there were, you know, it it took a village quite quite literally. And so the... um, the village was important and, you know, the importance, it's also stated that the research on the quilt concluded in 2019, which means that as I have said, um, you know, uh, the, the work goes on, people are finding new things that are still happening. Um, you know, and so all of that is a part of it. Um, I, um, I wanted it to talk about people like Lena Richard, who was the first black woman to host a cooking television show right. more than a decade before Junior, Julia Child. And, and um, you know, sometimes it was things I wrote about a woman called Charity Duchess Quiamo, who was an enslaved African cook who was the pastry queen of, you know, 18th century Rhode Island. Um it's not a southern thing only it's it's a national national united statesian thing and so um so there's all of that that's a part of it
3: right um and I think you know something that also I thought was of note you know particularly for um uh, for the culinary world um was Jefferson Evans, who was. A member of the very first graduating class of the Culinary Institute of America in 1947, um, you know, just and then then there was a bit of a downturn for a while, and but uh, that was that was very impressive. And cookbook writers, you know, they're recently. There has been a lot, there have been several cookbooks that are, you know, finally getting to the roots and saying this, these recipes are, you know, they're not, they're not just, uh, um, you know, reprints of, of someone, some mother's favorite, uh, book. But these people were innovators and documenters and like Melinda Russell, uh, who wrote the first, uh, in 1866, um, the domestic cookbook. Um, I want to talk about a few of these specific people, um, because you mentioned Charity Duchess Comino, and and there are a few more that I want to hear your your take on. But before we do that, we're going to take a brief break. So hang in there, and we'll be right back with Jessica B. Harris.
2: This program is brought to you by Wine Access. Here's a great way to discover and drink the best wines, expertly curated for you. Go to WineAccess.com HRN for more info. Hi, this is Sam Benrubi from the Grape Nation. I want to talk to you about Wine Access. You know I like to enlighten, inspire, and motivate you to try and drink more wine. Whether you're new to wine or a pro, Wine Access makes it easy for everyone to learn about and buy wines. Wine Access will help you choose the right bottle, whether you're looking to spend a few bucks or splurge on that special wine. Let the psalms, master psalms, and masters of wine at Wine Access sort through everything. It's all about the curation. These guys taste over 20,000 wines per year and only select the finest wines, exceeding expectations and over-delivering on prices. They equip you with the knowledge and stories behind each bottle, taking the guesswork out of choosing your next wine. Discover your new favorite bottles with Wine Access, and also ask about their wine club. Just go to WineAccess.com to get started now. That's WineAccess.com slash HRN. Plus, if any wine fails to impress, Wine Access will credit that bottle. No questions asked. Go to WineAccess.com slash HRN.
3: Hi, we're back talking about the Legacy Quilt and African-American contributions to American cuisine. Well, really, the foundation and the the. Building blocks of American cuisine, and Jessica, you selected some of the. um, I don't want to say older people; the more ones who are who, uh, back in history, going back to four hundred years. So for the first, you know, uh, couple hundred years, you you singled out a few people. Are there any who were kind of your favorites, we can't say favorites, but that surprised you?
4: Oh, well, I was sort of surprised daily. I think that there are so many people who, um, you know, who who came up, people I didn't know about, people who were uh, deeper and perhaps broader than I knew. Um, hmm. There were inventors that I had no idea of. So um, there's there was a lot that was surprising. I mean, I think, I think some of the the fun of doing it all was the learning process, mm-hmm. the finding out about people who you know who who were caterers, people who were inventors, and, and um, just you know folks who are kind of you would think ordinary folks, but then, nope. Um, people who really brought food and American food and African-American food onto a, a larger world stage. I mean, Agnes Moody was a discovery and she became a global ambassador of corn cuisine, hmm. Former, um, formerly enslaved, and suddenly... Uh, working at the World Exposition in Paris and showing Native and African-American foods to the world in the 19th century or the early 20th century, you know, we've got all of those kinds of things happening as well. We've got, you know, all of the very, very early people. Um, we've talked about Duchess Quimino, uh, but... Um, you know, people like um, the pepper pot vendors in Philadelphia, who were, you know, serving what was at some point called Philadelphia gumbo um, to to the general public as as street vendors. Uh, Rose Nico in New Orleans as a coffee seller. Um, the, the list goes on and on and on. It is, it is a pretty astounding list, and anyone who says that they knew all of them is just not telling the truth because there's no <laughs> way anyone could.
3: It, it really is impressive. I have to say the inventors really, that turned my head too. There were some incredible, incredible inventors, mostly having to do with, um, well, for this book, because it's all about food in the culinary world, but agriculture in particular, just really
4: amazing. Agriculture and service, and service, Mm -hmm. of course, coming out of a tradition of enslavement. uh, Service was the industry that beckoned uh, post-emancipation. It's like, well, if, if that's what you've been doing, agriculture as well, then that's what you have expertise in, you move forward with that. And so you get all of those different things. The other thing that I think will be an eye-opener for folks is this is not simply South, but South, North, and West, so that it follows, you know, it follows African-Americans throughout.
3: Yeah, I think that was a very um, impressive um, scope, you know, of the work. into sort of to let people know that this is, this is, we're talking America, not just, as you said, not just the American South.
4: Um, and it is the uh, entire country.
3: That's right. That's right. Um, there's, I am trying to think that the pepper pot vendors you mentioned, um, and there were the, um, who were the well, I can't, there's so many people. I mean, I'm looking. Every page has so many pictures, so many, so many stories, and um, and sometimes just on a product.
4: The idea was, the book. One of the reasons that the book kind of was published when it was was because so many people are unable to, at present, see the quilt itself, which is right. a magnificent and glorious thing. But people can go on the Museum of Food and Drink website and order the book and then have an ability to, to see the individual blocks because they're all, I mean, I've selected 25, but following those 25, the entire quilt is um, is replicated, if you will, in sort of unfortunately small um small images but images so you can see who's on it you can read a little bit about them you can see how things how things work and um and you can of course go online and do that as well and online you there's the possibility of adding someone who you find missing or someone whom you find worthy uh, to the quilt, to the virtual quilt—that's the ongoing process.
3: Yes, and and you mentioned that, and in doing that, and then we get to the you know the newer years, and people will see that yes, there are people in our current culture who are included in this, and, and will continue to be included, um, and that's and that's wonderful, and that's interesting, and of course you you know no one could ever you know name everyone who is uh, a contributor or influential. But those first hundred years, in particular, the first well, two hundred years even, just just astounding. And um, the I I think I think I read that the quilt will be on display at the Africa Center. Um,
4: oh well, the entire exhibit will is be on display. Going to open. It's just obviously been postponed because of the pandemic. Yes. Yes. And the quilt as centerpiece will be the centerpiece,
3: right? It is astounding, and the book is. I've warned people that once <laughs> don't, it's not a it's not a dire warning. It's a it's a wonderful it's a um, something to look forward to. Once you start you turning the pages, you can't stop until you get to the very end. I mean, it's just you know, it's just mind blowing, and it's and it's educational, and it's in just. Really well done and intriguing, and and I thank you and everyone for all the work you did on this. I can't wait until the exhibit opens. Other pieces of the exhibit. Can you talk about other pieces of the exhibit that are, are, are pretty much instrumental in, in knowing the history?
4: Well, I mean, the exhibit is basically designed in, I guess, let me get it right now, I think four... For components, um, rice and agriculture, hospitality and um, service, for want of a better way of putting it, um, distillation and brewing. And we haven't talked about that at all, but I mean, the importance of African-American bartenders and uh Brewmasters. I mean, we're beginning to hear about Nearest Green, who is the person who actually taught Jack Daniels how to distill. Right. But there are right. others. There well, are I just turned. Others. I
3: just turned to a page of a, you know a cocktail, a bartender, cocktail inventor, uh, John Dabney. I mean, they're just. I'm um, just amazing. The. The variety of things. But yes, you are absolutely right that we didn't talk about the brewers and the distillers and any phase of, of the culinary world. Um, and because we are, that's where what we're talking about here, um, all has a, an important contribution made by, um, by an African-American. It's, it's really, it, it really is quite astounding.
4: Well, to continue with discussing the exhibit, um, there's the theme of migration that then shows up that talks about the various migrations of African-Americans and how they moved from the South and the North into the West and so on and so forth. And then finally, the exhibit ends with a walkthrough. And this is for many people of a certain age going to be the big thing, almost as big or bigger than the quilt, uh, walk through the ebony test kitchen.
3: Yes, yes.
4: And and the ebony test kitchen has been um, not necessarily reproduced, but dismantled and reassembled in the exhibit space. So there is the ebony test kitchen, uh, you'll be able to take a walk through it. Uh, you'll be able to, at the end of that, see some presentations done by two of the food editors who worked at Ebony, um, Carla, Charlotte Draper and uh, Charlotte Lyons. Uh, I think Charlotte was there for about three or four years, maybe five or six, and uh, Charlotte was there for... About twenty-five, so you get to see some of the, the the space in which they worked, which is particularly interesting because it is very much a preserved in amber time warp kind of kitchen, which everything is sort of day glow orange with all kinds of um, all kinds of state of the art for the period. Uh, equipment and so on and so forth. So being able to walk through that is pretty extraordinary. And there, um, at the end, there is, um, or as you walk through, rather, there will be a curated um, playlist of music, Chicago music of the period of the Ebony Test Kitchen that's been curated by Questlove. So that'll be fun. Um, you know, it'll be, it's quite the experience when it opens. It will be quite, quite, quite something, something very different, something, you know, this is the first major exhibit done on African-American food in the country. So this is, uh, you know, it's a moment. It's a very special moment.
3: Indeed. Um, Now, do you think the future lies in this being installed permanently. Let's say, at the Smithsonian uh, African American Museum.
4: I don't speculate. I think it will find a permanent home. I'm not sure where, but uh-huh. I, it is certainly worthy of a permanent home somewhere.
3: Absolutely. Well, it is. It is really quite uh, the whole exhibit. I, I cannot wait to see it. I'm only seeing pictures. The book I got immediately, and and go to it often, um, to the book. And I think everyone should go to MoFAD, M-O-F is in Frank, mofad.org. That's the museum of food and drink.org. And you can read all about it. You can see, you can have, as Jessica mentioned, you can order a copy of the book. I, they, I think there must be in the second printing they sold out right away and they, and I know they had a few copies left. So, um, there are copies of it, and is it is really a you know a very nicely done picture book with with wonderful stories, excellent stories, and, and Jessica Harris, I I commend you and applaud you for the work you've done in in helping this come about and, and working with everyone, and. Sharing those stories with everyone, I think they're just so and you, as you say so many more to come, and I wish we could go down each one one by one, but I will leave that to everyone 's own discretion of which ones you want to spend more time reading um, it 's just something that every day I see as you mentioned every day you learn something new. It is a learning process, a tremendous learning process. And I thank you very much. I can't wait. I think I think Africa Center said that they would be exhibiting it prior to the
4: museum. I have no idea. I doubt very much. I don't know.
3: Oh, it's still up in the air. I mean, this, you know, COVID has certainly disrupted a lot of well-laid plans and this amongst them. So we will let everyone know when we know that this is going to be exhibited, when we can go back to regular life and regular viewing. So I wish you well and can't wait to hear what your next project might be because they're always groundbreaking. Thank you so much, Jessica.
4: Thank you, Linda. Take care. <laughs> Stay and well. Thanks,
3: thank you. And thanks for listening. This again has been another Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast.